everybody. My name is Eric Johnson, and we're back here again with my brother Derek running into the fog, uh, this time with our good friend Babette Ben Susan from Down Under. Hello, Babette, and hello, Derek. Good day. That's what we said. <laughs> good evening and uh, good morning, Babette. It's, uh, yeah. For the record, it's 5.30 p.m. here Central Standard Time, and it's uh, about 8.30 in the morning where you're at. Correct. Derek, correct. Well, I have very fond memories of wandering around Sydney for a day with you, uh, and uh, that was that was more years ago than we'll mention out loud, but uh, too Good. long, put it that way. <laughs> uh, and it's so nice to see you and have you on uh, one of the very first podcasts that Derek and I are doing together. You're, I think, guest wow. number eight. Is it eight oh, or nine? Wow. I think it's number eight. And uh, we do... We do mark the date. It's it's March eighteenth, twenty twenty one, here. And uh, if you haven't I'm in the seen future. it, in, in the future, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm in the future. I'm tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. And if you want right. to know, it's it's overcast, so that you can prepare for the weather tomorrow. <laughs> well, of course, you have you have fall coming in the southern hemisphere, and we've got spring popping everywhere. And so I always think that's kind of cool uh, to have meetings like this where we get to see each other on the other side of the world. Yeah, I know. I like it. And I, I love the the idea that, you know, I'm ahead of you guys in time. And it's like, yeah, I'm in the future. <laughs> that's there right. You go. Exactly Eric, right. Eric's been to Australia at least a couple of times. I've actually never had the opportunity to visit your great uh, area no. of the world. I got close, uh, close in, in some context, but Eric reminded me that I really wasn't that close when I was in Seoul. <laughs> yeah, 10,000 miles. 10, you know, 10,000 miles, no big deal. So it's pretty close. Yeah, okay, That's about the closest I've, I've come to your, your great area. Yeah. No, look, it's an entire continent that has distinctive animals, flora, fauna, you name it, and views and stuff. It's completely... It's a continent. It's an entire continent. So, you know, there's more to the world. <laughs> well, I will say that thanks to you, I got out of Sydney uh, City and out to Manly Beach, at least on a day trip excursion, and at least got out of town a little bit because of your yes. recommendation that I had to just don't hang out in Sydney in the city, go out and see something. So I did. It was awesome. And isn't that beach phenomenal? It's a lovely it is. beach. Yep, we moved out of Sydney three years ago. Ah. And I have to tell you, the beaches here, well, that's something else. Really? You know? Oh, it's, you know, we're on the Sunshine Coast. It's called oh, yeah. the Sunshine Coast for a reason. It's very much a holiday resort for a lot of Australians. Um, we are not that far from the Barrier Reef. Um, but you know, uh, the weather, the, the beaches, and there are. I'll be there. right down. I'll be right over. <laughs> I'm waiting Eric, for you. I'm waiting Eric, for you both. Eric's on his way. So, Babette, uh, you know, can, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your journey in competitive intelligence? And uh, obviously, we know that maybe you've uh, added some other competencies, uh, of course, over the years, and maybe CI isn't uh, quite what it once was within your day-to-day, uh, uh, -day, but uh, I know you still share a, a huge passion for it. I do. I do. You're so right. Um, gosh, where to start when you get these big, broad, open questions? Um, 
what happened is that when I was doing, so I started to get an inkling about the value of insights and research when I worked at Apple Computers. So one of the things at Apple we were not allowed to do was do any customer research. Steve Jobs had a policy that no one at Apple could do any customer research because customers didn't know what they wanted. And it's true. There is no market research anywhere that said they wanted the iPhone or, uh, you know, um, a Mac or an iPad, none of that. So what happened is that then when I started to do my studies and then I was a mature age doing an MBA, I realized that a lot of corporations, a lot of executives were developing strategies in vacuums. You know, they're all thinking they're going to be number one. They all want to do this kind of stuff without any understanding of the external world in which they competed. And when I did my MBA, it was death by case studies. (laughs) So in about, in, in, gosh, In three years, my MBA was a three-year program part-time. I think we did over 80 case studies. I really felt the routine. And that's when uh, a colleague of mine said, well, have a look at competitive intelligence. So this was back in the early 1990s. And I, I fell in love with the idea that now you had a grounding, you had a basis from which to develop sound strategies. So I started my own consulting firm the year, my last year of my MBA, I started MindShift. And I realised that in Australia at the time, there was very little, there was no expertise here. So uh, I started my consulting practice and in 1993 and 94, I started travelling to the US and to Europe to attend conferences to learn about competitive intelligence, to understand it. And I fell in love with it, completely fell in love with the whole idea of decision-making, sound decision-making. So I've run, I ran my consulting firm in the area of strategy and competitive intelligence for about, gosh, nearly 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then along the road, I realized, okay, I love doing consulting, um, but it's a hard, it's a hard process, you know, finding new clients, growing a business. It, it's not easy. And um, so when I got the Meritorious Award, I thought, oh, well, I've got the Oscar. What next? <laughs> because for me, the Meritorious was such an honor and such Uh, a cream of my career Mm. and I said what next well I then questioned myself what did I like to do and I found I love working with people I've always loved working with people and I think that's what's been to my advantage as a consultant and so I um, decided to do a postgrad degree in counseling so counseling is uh, you've got psychotherapists and counselors you know I don't think you've got it specifically in the US. I don't know if you have counsellors, but they're like therapists. I think it's as close as I can get. And I thought, no, don't want to be a counsellor. And then someone said, why don't you become a coach? 
a business coach with your experience. And I thought, what a bloody good idea. Very Australian expression, sorry. <laughs> right. um, and so what happened is that I did some CI. So if I, and I had a strategy, if I wanted to be known as a good coach, what are some key elements I need to understand? And how do I differentiate myself from all the thousands of coaches or people who claim to be coaches? Mm. So I did my research and I found out that there were two things I needed to do. One, whichever course I took, I needed to make sure it was accredited with the International Coaching Federation so I could work around the world, okay, really quick. But secondly, I wanted the coach training to give me a unique tool that would enable me to differentiate from my competitors. So as you can see, I used my CI skills in a completely different way to make a, a decision about my future career. Right. And there was one, there were six courses uh, that provided that in 2010. And one of them was in the United States. And after discussion and everything, we agreed I would do that one in the US because they had a program in LA. So it was easy for me to catch a flight across from Sydney to LA and back. And that's what I did four times. I finished my wow. course in 2012. I was a member of the International Coaching Federation um, and I started, I was still running mind shifts and I started my coaching practice. Wow. And then after a while, I realized I love the coaching. So I, I spend more time coaching now than anything else. And I just, I love it. But I still love CI. It, you know, it helped me find a niche um, you know, the, the, I'm a firm believer that we should all be doing the process of CI in every aspect of our life because mm. it's all about making better decisions. Mm -hmm. So that's, right. that's a long story. Well, you left great, something. It's a great story, isn't it, Eric? It's an awesome story. And you left out a very important part, which is your scholarship and your writing. Uh, which I think is something that people really uh, know your name for, uh, particularly outside of Australia um, yes. and around the world. And you've had many collaborations with our good buddy, Craig, uh, and, and others. Uh, Absolutely. And so I, I'm tell us about that. Are you still doing uh, writing and are you still sort of pushing out the analytic boundaries and, and, uh, and driving that forward? Look, I will never, ever get off the platform of pushing the analytical boundaries. Never. You know, it's my thing. So nice. currently um, we are working on developing a website to enable people to have access to all the tools we wrote about. And, and you know, Craig and I co-authored six books. I was going to say this about six, yeah. Yeah, that have sold in universities for consultants and students. And as a result of my work, I was appointed an adjunct professor at uh, the University of Technology in Sydney um, in recognition of the work that we had done, Craig and I, on strategy and, and analytical tools and thinking. But it's amazing because I got the idea when I was doing my MBA of having one book that covered a whole lot of analytical tools. Because, you know, when you're a consultant, 
uh, or a student or even a product manager and you're asked to write reports or to look at products, most people fall down on the famous and the most abused, misused tool ever called SWOT analysis. Um, and I've told students if they didn't do a proper SWOT and gave me the four boxes that most people do, they failed my subject. Right. <laughs> really hard taskmaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you point out that you point out that when everything, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And bingo. I think Absolutely. that in the last in the last twenty five years, the analytical diversity and uh, versatility has really elevated for intelligence analysts in the business world. And I think you're a big part of that reason. So well done. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, I think the reason why, though, that one of the drivers, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, both of you, is that we have so much information now mm. that we don't understand what that information means anymore. Mm -hmm. And without an analytical framework, how do you sort that information out? I've always thought of the analytical framework like the picture of the jigsaw puzzle. So an analytical framework gives you what the picture should look like. And if you start putting information in, it helps you understand a bit more the dynamics of what you're trying to understand if you don't have a framework well as i asked how do you sort out the information you collect how do you know what gaps are missing yep. you, you, if you don't have it's the same as a jigsaw puzzle if you don't have that picture how do you know which pieces go where and what pieces are missing how do you know that you've got a missing piece of your jigsaw puzzle Right. Because the dog ran off with it. <laughs> you don't have a picture. You don't know. And that's what the frameworks are all about. Yeah, I'm still passionate about it. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I think, you know, right <laughs> now we are going through this sort of transformation from an information poor relative scarcity of information to one where there's so much information, we don't really know what it's saying. We don't know what's in there. And so the filters are starting to change. And even uh, much of the work that I've been doing in the analytic world has been around thinking of them as filters rather than frameworks, because you're trying to suppress parts of this flood of everything. You've got this flood of everything coming at you all the time and it's getting faster. And the yes. filter suppresses the irrelevant part. Uh, and so- Good approach, yeah. That's a, a good uh, analogy as well, um, that it's a filter. It, it just concerns me. So one of the things I got passionate about is the quality of decision-making mm. around the world. And, um, and that's why I call myself, I gave myself the, the name, the decision-making, the branding, the decision-making maverick. Um, People, executives who run corporations and boards of directors are making decisions on what they suspect or what they think they know. They're based around their biases, their assumptions, you know, limiting beliefs, their values and so forth. 
But the problem is it has nothing to do often with the reality of the situation. Okay. So here are executives making decisions to acquire companies or to reduce headcount or, you know, these decisions affect people's lives. Mm -hmm. You have a fiduciary duty to make the best possible decision you can. So how can you make that decision without the right CI? Yeah, right. I don't know how. So I'm just trying to... Um, there was a great case about a law firm in Australia called Slater and Gordon. Hmm. Now, they were the largest legal firm in the world, in fact, and they bought uh, an insurance company in the UK, if I recall correctly. Hmm. And because what had happened is they had grown globally using what's called a Pac-Man strategy. You know what a Pac-Man strategy is? Gobble, gobble, gobble. Acquisition, 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 acquisition. Right. And they bought this this company because of its insurance policy in healthcare, you know, ambulance chasing, I'm assuming. Mm. Um, please don't, you know, this is rough memory. Yeah. Um, the company, they bought, their assets were something like $3 billion dollars. The purchase was $1.5 billion. Um, so they purchased the company in, I think it was February. In December of that year, they gave their first results and they were at a loss. And their shares were, in February, their shares were trading at something like, um, uh, let's say, $30 or $100. By February the following year, their shares were trading at nine cents. Wow. So here's a company that wiped billions of dollars. Now, why did it do that? Hmm. Several things that are fascinating about this case. First of all, they had a culture where no one could say no to the CEO, hmm. not even the board. So you have huge biases, assumptions operating. Secondly, there were journalists' reports that the insurance company they were buying was going bankrupt. Hmm. They, and, in fact, I recall, if I recall correctly, someone had written on the issues with the company 27 times in the press. Wow. And analysts were very surprised that the law firm bought this company because why wouldn't you wait it to it for it to go broke and then just pick the assets you want? Now, it was all in the public domain, but now this company is such a – it's no longer a, a global company. It went from a global law firm to zero in one year. Wow. The mighty you know, fall. When you think of, of why, and that's just one story. So where's Blockbuster? Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. Where are a whole lot of other companies 
you know, executives have a fiduciary duty. You are employing people. They need their salaries. They need to have an income to pay for school fees, health care for their kids. To make decisions without understanding. Anyway, sorry. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great point, though. Sorry? All those, all those case studies are excellent examples. You know, in your coaching uh, life now, Babette, um, Obviously, the name of the podcast is Running Into the Fog. I'm sure you have countless examples of helping executives and boards as you're, as you're yeah. speaking about sort of navigate what Eric and I refer to as the uncertainty. In other words, there's not, it's not that it's uncertain. There's just not enough certainty to make a decision of some form. So back to your point about the relevance of CI and everything that we do, I would imagine just as you've been talking about the the natural alignments between CI and coaching and, and oh. helping these executives and these boards run through that fog has been, I'm sure, uh, a really great extension of your skill sets. But can you speak about any um, examples without naming names, of course, that, you know, maybe where, you know, the, the, the fog has been so thick that they haven't wanted to run through that fog and get to the other side of it? You know, that, that's always really uh, interesting to us. So let me say something that I've learned now since coaching for the past 10 years. And I coach professional uh, executives predominantly. If you don't want to run through the fog, you can't be coached. Hmm. Quite easy. If you're not willing to run through that fog, to, to learn, to question yourself, then you really not coachable you're not ready for being coached but if you want to run through the fog if you want someone to run beside you to help you then you're coachable so when a lot of companies see a lot of corporations are getting their executives coached so they have in-house coaches or they bring in coaches from the external world and often Often you get this story. So someone, an executive gets a performance review. They need, they want to promote them, but they need to do a bit more work on their leadership skill and move them from being a manager to much more a leader to understand about delegation and all of these kinds of things. So what often happens is the corporation will say, well, here are three coaches, give them a call and see who you, you fit with. So often what they'll do is they'll do it because it's part of their job. They really don't want to be coached, but they have to follow the system. So that's where you'll find a lot of people who really don't want to be coached. But people who want to be coached, who want to transition, Derek, they're the ones that will listen. They're the ones that will do the research. And they're the ones that will do the hard yakka. Mm. And, and that's, you know, so when you're doing, so let's say I have a senior executive, uh, he's looking to be sit on a board. So he wants to have a board role. Um, he's looking to change his career. He's been CEO for a while. And he's looking for different board roles. So that we start thinking, well, where, what kind of boards? What's your passion? So we start to uncover what's important to the person 
and then they have to do their research, you know, what is the kind of board they'd like to be on? Um, what are the things they'd like to do? So I had a CEO of a pharma company um, who knew that he's an American, who knew that his time in Australia was coming to an end and that he'd have to go back to head office in Boston. And um, so we had to get him ready. He wanted to know, well, he knew there wouldn't be a role back for there, and he didn't know if he really wanted to have another role in a pharma in the pharma company back in the US. So we started to plot things here that he had to do to prepare for over there. Hmm. So, but he had to do his research. So he joined a global uh, volunteer type organization like the Lions. Uh, or Rotary, I don't know. They're, I think they have different names in the US. So he was able to transfer. He was, you know, then we looked at directorships, what are the kinds of things he needed to do. And so it all started. So he was prepared when he moved to the States. And in the end, he loved the coaching so much, he ended up doing the same coaching program that I got my certification. Wow. He's now a competitor. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> that and I love him. So the oldest story in the business, right? Is if your if your students are really successful, they'll aspire to compete with you uh, someday. And he he has so <laughs> he's now coaching people that were back in the organization here in Australia that he led. And I'm going off, oh, but that's my job, <laughs> right? Oh, I, I like the company so much. I bought the company. That's that's, that's sort of it. <laughs> so he did the course. He he's certified now as a coach has the same qualifications as I do. I just have a bit more experience under my belt. Well, Eric, what, what, Bet's talk, what, what Bet is talking about really kind of goes back to the, the whole concept of humility that you are always talking to, you know, that, that need to be humble and uh, have humility if you ever want to accept, um, you know, the insights that your teams around you might, might give you. Any thoughts on that as it links back to Babette's comments? Well, I'll just I'll just share with Babette. We I now use it personally as a as a qualification tool. If uh, the way I usually think of it is, if there's a prospective uh, client or partner or collaborator that's out there, and we're sort of getting to know each other and trying to decide if there's an opportunity to collaborate, if there's nothing I can teach them that they don't already know, uh, then it's probably not going to be a very successful collaboration. And you know, you with twenty plus years, maybe going on 30 in, in this business and our, you know, our sort of tenure is probably in the mid 20, 20 year tenure. I've not, that's never been more true than it is right now is that people get so wound around their own ego and it's just like yeah. their entire personal value is invested in being right all the time and having all the Ugh. answers and man, does it get tiresome. And that's that humility quotient that is a, a super high qualifier. And I think it's actually a, an inverse uh, metric for the yield potential of intelligence. What do you think about that? Humility um, indicates how, how much yield an intelligence collaboration might be able to have. I think humility will always identify how much collaboration you'll have in mm. anything. Mm -hmm. If you 
it's not just intelligence, it's in everything. If you're, and I think we talk about humility, but I talk about it as the willingness to learn. The moment you believe you have nothing to learn or you're fine, don't come near me. Or you guys. <laughs> you're no longer teachable, you know, and, and, you know, the other term I like to use is they've, they've made themselves willfully helpless. <laughs> there's, there's nothing I can do to help you at that yeah. point. Um, yeah. That's a very good, that's very good. Yeah. I, I see it as um, if you're not willing to, to keep learning and to keep growing, fine. Yep. That's okay. That That's your shtick. Call the guy uh, in Boston. Uh, he'll he'll help you out. I bet. <laughs> right? No, he 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 did it. No, he won't. He won't take them on either. That's good. That's good. He won't. But it, it's. I think it it's it's not necessarily humility because some people might call it. Um, some people who have it badly are self-effacing. So, mm-hmm. and that's not good. But mm-hmm. I I think it's simply the willingness to learn more about yourself or the willing and, and it's coaching is all about the willingness to learn more about yourself. Mm-hmm. Good CI is about the willingness to learn more about your industry, your job and, and the environment. Um, yeah. But coaching is all about the willingness to learn more about yourself. I think a lot of clients though, are very vulnerable in many ways. Um, I think a lot of people don't want to admit that they don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think right. that's, that's uh, and or some, when it comes to coaching, are maybe not willing because it, I, I had one client who we started work together and there was so much, so many issues that they had to go to therapy. Oh, really? They, they were. Mm. Yeah, and it was just the way their upbringing had been and their impact. And that's why I'm saying in CI too, some executives don't want to know mm-hmm. because it'll bring up too much issues for them. So, you know, we... As experienced CI professionals and as coaches, we need to understand that that is part of also what's playing out. But then again, you've got some dickheads. (laughs) That's true. It happens. You've got, remember, I always think of everything is on a spectrum from, you know, really smart people to dickheads, you know. (laughs) They're there in business. The DHS. The dickhead spectrum. We've invented a new. <laughs> well, we're, we're just borrowing your uh, yardstick and that. Yeah, but I said there were intelligent people at the other end. <laughs> That's right. So they have a low dickhead ratio. Uh, in other words, if they. They have no. It's a bell curve. They're not there. <laughs> yep. You know, one of the things we were talking about earlier when you when you first joined, we were going to dig into was you were asking about travel. And here we are almost exactly a year into lockdown with pandemic 
everything going on. And uh, you were talking about travel. I've been watching, I watched the news in Australia a bit uh, and sort of keep track of what's going on down under. And I've noticed that there's a big push to get people traveling again, even to the point of buying them an airline ticket to go somewhere. And one of the interesting innovations that I saw emerge was having a mystery ticket. In other words, you get this ticket, you don't know where you're going to go. You just get on the plane and the airline takes you there and it's surprise, you're in Melbourne or yeah. Western Australia not, or somewhere. Like I that. should tell you, that's not COVID. That's, that was running was well that? before COVID. Yes. Okay. So Qantas were doing mystery uh, things. I'm pretty sure it was before COVID because I know there were uh, one mystery one, they ended up in Antarctica. Um, wow. So I, I think it was pre-COVID. <laughs> but that was a more expensive ticket. Um, right. But what they're doing here is they're trying to promote uh, local travel within Australia so that uh, because the tourism industry has just been decimated uh, with right. COVID, um, so they're trying, the government is trying to promote for people to travel uh, around Australia now, but we had a very um, severe lockdown compared to what you had in the US. And that's why we've only had about a thousand deaths in all of mm -hmm. Australia. Um, you know, we have very little COVID in Australia. The only time I've had to wear a mask was at the airport and going on the plane. Um, just, there's just so little COVID here. Um, but what then we had, but we had very severe lockdown. In other words, no international flights were allowed in except returning Australians. Uh, borders between the states were closed. Um, you know, you couldn't drive from one state to the other. It was closed. Um, yeah, curfews were set in. Um, very, very different to how you've experienced it in the States. So that's what's made us lucky. They're now talking about opening up a bubble between a travel bubble between New Zealand and maybe another one between uh, and Singapore. So we might be able to go to Singapore or New Zealand. So we're planning already on going to New Zealand. I love New Zealand. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful country. As a Lord so. of the Rings fan, I'm sorry if I'm stereotyping myself, but I kind of want to go to that's New Zealand. great story. <laughs> right? <laughs> It is a great, great, and that they filmed it there in New Zealand. So we've done the North Island, so we're going to go now and do the South Island. But we're going to wait after winter. It's too cold. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, it's it's pretty chilly down there right now, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Uh... It's getting chillier because we're going into winter. So Right. Yeah. So, yeah, uh -huh. so travel. The, the thing that is interesting is people are now, Businesses are now questioning what will happen with returning to normal work, you know, to the way it was. So, first of all, we know that a lot of corporations are going to have flexible work where you can work a couple of days at home and a couple of, you know, several days in the office. So, there's going to be that blended work where prior to COVID, it was you had to go to the office. So that's going to have a big impact on several things. Office space, transport. And, you know, people are getting very used to or overtired with Zoom 
So, you know, what's the impact going to have on travel, uh, on airline industries? What's the impact that's going to have on, you know, public transport, uh, the number of buses and roads? Because people aren't going to be going to work. The, the, The traffic's not going to be the same all the time. And then the big office space, people, corporations are going to give up a lot of office space. So does that mean we're going to turn more of those into apartment buildings, a mixture of apartments? What does that mean for shops? Then retail outlets, do some have to? So that is the um, business side. But there's also the issue that I was reading that psychologists are already warning for people to be very aware that as people start to come back to work, there's going to be issues. People Mm. are going to get angry. They're going to yell at each other because we've been used to living on our own in our own nests. And now we're back interacting with people. There's going to be staff meetings and people are just going to get, oh, you know, before you could turn off the volume or put your picture up and walk out of the meeting, you know, there are a whole lot of things you could do. But now you've, so there's going to be the physical issues of travel, of empty office space and, you know, transport, but there's also going to be the psychological stuff of having to go back to work and interact with people again. It's hard. We've all introverted for over a year. And then now a lot of people have got also mental health issues have Mm. come to the fore. So, you know, Nothing's going to go, the new, there is no normal. Right. And I think we need to take that word out of our um, issue about work. It's not normal anymore. Things are going to be very different. Well, I think the cost structure is what is most puzzling to me, at least here in the United States, it's uh, generally about 70% of the travel economy whether that's airlines, hotels, other forms of hospitality, restaurants, all the stuff that goes into supporting people on the road. About 70% of that cost structure is business related. And we just spent 12 months proving that businesses don't have to send their people on the road. So what happens to the 30% that still remains? Is that going to triple in terms of its cost structure and the consumer and leisure traveler? Suddenly you're not going to Disney World for less than $25,000, $25,000, you know, uh, and it, so, so it gets all of that out of whack. And I, um, while I, I really wish I could go out on the road with my baby brother and go visit clients and go to conferences and, you know, Ain't gonna happen. it's going to be a little while before that is a commonplace thing again. And there will be conferences and there'll be business meetings and stuff. They just won't be very profitable for a very long time. And the, that will decrease the frequency, I think, of those types of gatherings is you're just not going to, you're not going to go on the road like you used to. And it's a shame because we know from the CI perspective, that's where you collected a lot of info. Human intelligence. That's right. For sure. See, and, and I agree. I think that's, that's going to make CI even harder. And we've also got the issues of um, there's been more spammers uh, calling us on the phone, you know, oh, you know, I'm calling from this telephone company, we'll offer you a special deal and all of this kind of stuff. So people have become even more wary 
mm. of human to human, I think, interactions. I think you're right. It's probably right. So it's been reported in the last 24 hours, actually, just a, a little bit of a different take on the more yeah. people uh, working from home, continuing to work from home. Google Alphabet reported that they're going to hire you know, uh, 10,000 plus people and spend $7 billion in 2021 on new staff and real estate, which is a little bit perplexing to me. Um, you know, obviously when you have the resources of a Google, you can do certain things that, that maybe other um, organizations can't. So here in the States, Babette, you know, there's a lot of stimulus discussion and uh, releasing of funds to um, a whole mixture of different things. How does that work in Australia? You know, what's has there been stimulus funding? Is that a pretty... Oh, the government's been amazing. I have to say, I think our government has been absolutely astounding. So my business received $10,000 from the government wow. to keep me going during uh -huh. this whole COVID. That, uh, and so what I did, because I was, I'm very fortunate, is that... I hired subcontractors to help me with my marketing so I could spread some of that money out yeah. into the economy to people I knew who weren't. So I got one woman to work with me on my database, another one on my website, somebody else on, you know, doing my stationery, my livery, all in the same thing so I could have things. So I just spread it out. Um, so I think our Great. government has given us much better stimulus packages, but then we're a smaller economy to mm. the US. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, the Google thing, I don't know, I don't trust them. <laughs> you're not, you're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone. I trust them. Don't trust them. Don't trust Facebook. Don't trust any of the social media entities. Um, and this is what always surprises me. If you get those senior executives one-on-one, -on -one, they're good people. I think most people are good people. So tell me, why is it when you put them in an organisation, they turn into dickheads? <laughs> that scale just shoots through the roof, doesn't it? Yep. You like that? That's why I said it. But no. Yep. So when you talk one-on-one -on -one with some of these executives, when you hear them, when you, you think what a decent human being, what a nice person they are, then why are they making these stupid decisions in their organisations? Yeah. 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 Just... Who was it? Was it uh, Charlie Munger? Uh, I think it's Warren Buffett's business partner said, show me the incentives and I'll show you the future. Um, and that's probably... Very clever is that yeah. there's incentives there for them to be dickheads and to absolutely act that way. <laughs> and I think you're dead right because that's their, their KPIs. That's what they'll focus on. Right. Yep. And I agree with you got a hundred percent. That's a very good comment. I like that. Show me their incentives and I'll show you the future. Right. Very good. Yeah. yeah. So let me tell our listeners, um, we hadn't talked in, however many uh, years right Babette you a decade um, <laughs> it was actually one of your one of your newsletters uh, I'm a subscriber to the decision uh, maverick uh, newsletter and it was one that came out you had a you had a cute story in there about lawn care 
and uh, God, oh, and Francis, God and Lawn Care. <laughs> yeah, and how it, you know, this in the story I'm paraphrasing, but it was about how, uh, you know, St. Francis was just uh, appalled that the, uh, the people would uh, water their grass just so that they could turn around and cut it and different things like that. And it was just, it was funny. God. Yeah, God was asking St. Francis. Yes. Well, the boy, fun. What I find is, uh, you know, you're, you are such a people person and I, I am also, and I think that's the thing about running through the fog, navigating that fog is that when people are used to, like Eric just said, would love to go to a conference uh, together and, and do that. Uh, when people are used to that, it's, it's like this ongoing un- under certainty of when something like that might return to us. And it's, you know, I'm sure it's a bummer and it's, um, no fun to kind of step through, but I've been saying lately, isn't it funny how fast a year goes? <laughs> I don't know how many people love when I say it that way, but you, you do look back on a year, year ago, we were just oh. starting to, to go through this thing. And it's frankly, I'm finding it surprising just how fast that year went looking back on it. Obviously it goes kind of slower, you know, while you're going through it. Any thoughts on that, on that concept? Well, I do know I have a favorite article. Um, that I'll happily share if I can track it down, how the brain perceives time and why we think time goes past quickly. Um, It's got something to do with the brain and timing and memory and the way we remember things. So let me write that down. I'll see if I can find that article. Why don't we use that actually as an inducement to close things out? And uh, so for anybody who's listening to this, Babette's going to tell you how to reach out to her and get in touch. And she'll send you that article about how the brain perceives time or a link. How about that? Fine. Love it. Love it. I'll have to take a picture of it. It's an old article. There you go. Well, where, can people, where can people connect with you, Babette, online and, and elsewhere? Absolutely. Look, the best way is through my website, which is uh, www.mindshifts, M-I-N-D-S-H-I-F-T-S.com.au. Please reach out to me that way through the website. There's a connect page. Uh, You're welcome to email me directly, and that's babette at mindshifts.com.au. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Uh, they're the two that I use. Um, please. And, and if I can, if anybody's got any questions as a result of our discussions, you know, I'll talk about CI and coaching and decision making underwater. <laughs> you won't get me to stop. Well, next time we're, uh, we're on the road, Derek and I are going to come to the Gold Coast and we'll go rent some scuba gear and hit the Great Barrier. How about that? Sunshine Coast. It's the Sunshine, Sunshine Coast. Coast. Yeah, Very the Gold Coast good. is Miami. The Sunshine oh, Coast okay. is 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 the other side of Brisbane. Uh, you're still a couple of hours away from uh, the Barrier Reef, though. Um, by- is that in the is that in the neighborhood of Noosa? Am I remembering? Bingo. Noosa is the Sunshine Coast. I remember it's our twenty beautiful- minutes down the road from me here. Your dear countryman, uh, Vernon Pryor, God rest his soul, uh, who used to live there. And uh, I remember remember being his advocate for the CI Fellows Award back when he got the CI Fellows Award and got to know him a little bit. And uh, what a lovely guy he was. Well, Vernon and his wife, Shirley, uh, lived 
uh, 15 minutes from us. So I caught up with Shirley when we moved up here. She's wow. now moved to Norfolk Island, um, which is quite famous because that's where Mutiny on the Bounty occurred. And it was the, it was the sailors of Mutiny of the Bounty that set up Norfolk Island that created. And so it's, there's a whole story there too. So <laughs> as a historian, as a historian, I love that we ended with history on that. There you and go. That, how lovely to see you and, and talk it's to you. Wonderful and, uh, to see you both. And thank you. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. And I would have loved to have given you, spent a bit more time questioning you both with your goals, where you see yourselves going and how you guys run in the fog. Well, I think we've got a date for our next podcast. Interview. Let's let's do another one of these, Babette, and we'll, we'll let you flip the table Anytime. on us. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Love Thank it. you so much. Uh, sure was Thanks great to reconnect. Eric, always great to be on the Running Into the Fog podcast with you both. And uh, we'll look forward to talking again soon. And I'm going to hit Thank you. Have a great evening. You too. You too.